The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Good morning. Good to see you all here on this Labor Day weekend. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, I do ask now as we come to your word that you would take your word, that you would implant it down into the very marrow of our bones, into the very deepest part of our hearts, or deepest part of our souls, that we might be changed, that we might be made more like your son Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Summer Aaron and I watched the Netflix TV series Inventing Anna. I don't know if you watched this or not. Maybe you did. There's a book as well that was written. It's all a true story. It's about a young con artist. Her name was Anna Delvey, and she's from Russia or Germany, or nobody really knows. Does she have money? Does she not have money? It's really all confusing. But really what she did is she established herself, and it's a true story, she established herself in the New York art scene, high society, and she did it by essentially name-dropping people, name-dropping places, throwing some cash around, making it seem like she had a lot of money, acting like she knew people she didn't until it was also exposed. And she ended up being on the hook for defrauding almost a quarter of a million dollars from people and almost securing a $22 million loan. And the reality was that everything and everyone she said that she knew and everything she said that she had done was all really just a lie. She didn't know any of these people. And once people started figuring that out, they realized that the details didn't add up. She didn't really know the people she said she knew. Of course, she ended up in prison, but it reminded me of the people that John is addressing here in chapter two of first John, the ones who had left the church. And now they were trying to pull people out of this church that John is writing to out of this community, trying to get them to leave and come with them in chapter one, this group of people said, well, we don't have sin. 
We're not sinners. We don't sin. And now they're saying in chapter two, something else that John is addressing. They're saying, come join us outside of the church, leave this community because listen, we also know God. We know God we've left, but we still know God. We're with him. And this is what John is addressing in our passage today from first John chapter two. So I'm going to look in relation to that three things, the wanderers, the rising light and people of the light, the wanderers, the rising light and the people of the light. First, the wanderers, this group that had left the church, John refers to them several times in this passage here in John, first John chapter two, he mentions them in verse four and what they're saying in verse four, verse six, verse nine and verse 11. All these whoever phrases right here. Whoever says they know God, that's verse four. Whoever says they abide in Jesus, verse six. Whoever says they're in the light, verse nine. These people are saying all these things and yet they don't obey God. They don't imitate or walk as Jesus walked and they don't love the people that Jesus loves. John says these people in verse four, he says they're, they're liars. They're Anadelvies essentially is what he's saying. They don't know the person that they claim to know. They don't know God. They say they know God, but listen, they're trying to defraud you. They're leading you into the dark. Verse four here may sound familiar if you've been here for the past couple of sermons, because John is repeating himself. He repeats himself a lot throughout first John, but he's repeating himself a little bit here in chapter one, verses six through eight. He says something very similar in reference to this group. In chapter one, he said, if you say you are without sin, you are in the darkness, he says. And in fact, in verse eight of chapter one, he says, you deceive yourself. That word deceive is the Greek word planeo, which actually means you are wandering aimlessly off the path. You've misled yourself. You were out just wandering around directionless. You have no idea where you're going. And John is saying to say that you don't have sin, you don't need God is to wander around in the dark. You aren't seeing things clearly. Likewise, in chapter two here to say that, you know, God, that you have a relationship with God and yet you don't follow or want to obey him. Well, then you are also wandering around in the dark. Look at verses nine and 11 here of chapter two, these two, whoever phrases here in verse nine, whoever says they're in the light and yet they hate their brothers and sisters, the people of God, the people in the church. John says, if you are doing that, you are still in the darkness. Verse 11. In fact, it's so dark. He says, that they do not know where they are going. They're wandering around, walking in the dark, essentially because they're dark within as well, dark in the sight. They're essentially blind, John is saying. They do not know where God is even directing them. In 2013, there was a woman, her name was uh, Jerry Laguerre, or Larguet, sorry, I mispronounced her last name. But Jerry, I'm going to call her Jerry for the rest of the time, so don't worry about it. Jerry, she was an experienced hiker, and she decided to take a through hike on the Appalachian Trail, which I don't know if you know what that is, but that means she's hiking the entire Appalachian Trail from the top to the bottom, a 2,000-mile hike. Well, somewhere along that trail in 2013, she disappeared. Her husband couldn't find her, contact her. No one could find her. In 2016, three years later, a park ranger just stumbled upon her body. They found her, her campsite all of her gear, her journal entries, and her cell phone. Once they charged that, they began to read all the stuff. They realized that she had headed off the trail to find somewhere to go to the bathroom in the dusk. But in doing that, she had gotten confused, couldn't find her way back. And so in her desperate attempt to find her way back, she began wandering aimlessly around. And the more confidently she made a decision, I got to get up on this ridge. I got to get up on that hill so I can see where I need to go. The more she did that, the more lost she became until eventually 
she succumbed to the elements and passed away in her tent after they realized 26 days of wandering around. A month of wandering around trying to find her way. And amazingly, this. Her campsite was only actually 60 yards away from a clearing and only a 30-minute walk to the south to a logging road to shelter. But in the dark of the wood and in her confusion, Jerry never figured out where she was supposed to go, which was the right direction that would lead to life. John is saying, claiming to know God without wanting or without trying to obey him or follow him or imitating Jesus or loving Jesus' people, that is essentially aimlessly wandering around in the dark like Jerry, not knowing where you are headed, not even knowing where you are supposed to go, not even knowing what a relationship with God is supposed to be like. Last week, Tim mentioned in a similar vein this idea that in our current society and, of course, since really the beginning of time, what our temptation is is to really orbit our lives and, in fact, everyone else's life around ourselves, to make ourselves the orbital center of all things and make everything revolve around you. He mentioned that because everybody is trying to do that now, we're all just crashing into each other because we have no center for all of us. By the way, if you want to understand how much that idea of you being the center, the orbital center, has already become a part of your own thinking, ask yourself how uncomfortable you felt listening to verses 3 and 6 here of 1 John chapter 2. How do they make you feel? Because the more you are at the center of life and trying to make yourself the center, the more God's commands and direction are going to feel like a threat to you. And at the very best, they're going to feel like an optimal advice that you can choose if you want to. But you see, to carry this sort of illustration of the orbiting center, God's salvation in Jesus is not simply going to all these planets that are wandering around in the dark and slamming into each other and simply saying, I forgive you for being off course. I forgive you for damaging that other planet. It's not going to Jerry while she is lost in the woods and saying, I forgive you for being off course and being confused and then saying, good luck in the woods or saying to these planets, go about your business slamming into each other still. Of course not. We know that wouldn't be salvation. In Jerry's case, of course, it led directly to her death. It must also be putting those planets back into their correct orbit around the sun. It must also be bringing Jerry to the correct path, to the direction that will lead to her life, back in the direction they are supposed to go, in the orbit they are supposed to trace. Jesus' salvation is, of course, forgiving us, but it is also in that forgiveness orienting us around him and around the place he is bringing us to, around the place that he's actually bringing the world to, in fact, the place that he is bringing all of history to. Because Jesus' plan, God's plan, is not to let things always just be bumping around in the dark, but to bring everything into his light, into his glorious light. Go to our Old Testament passage here. It's Isaiah 60. It's at the end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 60 here uh, is mentioning really three things, I think, in one. Three things in one. One, of course, is the future of God's people. The second is that future which begins at Jesus' birth. And the final thing is the future of all things, the future of history and of the world. Isaiah 60 is a promise to the Old Testament church who is waiting in darkness, 
wondering and wanting God to shine his light and presence upon them, to bring his forgiveness and grace and save them. And they're waiting for that. In Isaiah 59, God makes a promise to them that he's going to send a redeemer to them. And then Isaiah 60 begins, and it tells you what that redeemer looks like. It looks like a light that rises upon God's people and shines on them. Well, what else does it look like? Jordan was sitting next to me while we were reading this passage, and he sounds, he said, this is a great Advent passage. Yes, it is an Advent passage, because this scene looks like a nativity set, doesn't it? The nations and kings will all come from afar with their treasure, just like those magi, the kings from the Orient East. They're bringing their treasure, coming to the light that has risen. They're bringing what? Verse 6, frankincense and gold, and also what else is surrounding this light that has risen? Well, it's camels and sheep and rams. This is a nativity set. And all those who used to be wandering aimlessly in the dark, out and about in all the various places of the world, they're now being pulled into the orbit around this Redeemer that God has sent in Isaiah 60, the light of the world. And they're also being brought, in verse 7, into God's house. To make, did you catch this? To make what he already believes is beautiful even more beautiful. See that? Well, what is God's beautiful house? All throughout the Old Testament. It's the tabernacle. It's the temple. It's the temple. When we come into the New Testament, what happens to the temple? What becomes the temple in the New Testament? It's you. It's you. It's the people of God. And if you are connected to Jesus by faith and by baptism, then you become a part of God's house. And he wants you to be in his house with him. What Isaiah 60 is saying is that God finds you beautiful. Do you believe that about yourself? That God finds you beautiful and desires you. That he says, quite literally, I would die to bring that into my house. Whatever the cost. He wants you. And he wants you in relationship with him. He wants you to come into his beautiful house to do what? To make it more beautiful, it says here in verse 7, with your presence, with your gifts and talents and treasures, with your acts of love. The Lord has shined his light upon you to bring out and illuminate your beauty and cast away the darkness within you, to put you back into the right direction and to help make his people, his church, and indeed his very world more beautiful. And if you know the love of this Jesus, of this kind of Jesus, then you will want to follow him. You will want to obey him and love what he loves. You will want to walk in his light and in his direction because you have known and you have felt that it is good, that it is beautiful and glorious. And also, as Isaiah 60 tells us, it's the future of the world. That's what Isaiah 60 says and the rest of it. And the rest of Isaiah is all about us. John says later in his little letter here, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says that the darkness is passing away. The darkness, which we've already talked about, what the darkness is in First John, it's death and sin and selfishness and lying and betrayal, all those things. Those are the things that happen wandering around up in the dark in the woods. That is not where things are headed. No, the true light, John says, is already shining, is already come into the world. The light of God's holy presence, of course, in Jesus but not only in Jesus, but now spreading through his beautiful people, like this community that John is writing to in 1 John, like you all, 
like every church throughout the world, who truly abide in him and walk in the light, who shine with the light of Christ reflected in their lives. Those who are united to Jesus by faith and by baptism, they become, with the risen light of Christ on them, they become the people of light. The people who actually know who Jesus is and thereby do these kinds of things. Like John, who truly knew Jesus by touch. Our gospel reading here from John 13. You know, the night of Jesus' crucifixion is John 13. The same John who wrote this little letter in 1 John was there that night in John 13 and wrote the gospel of John. And everything he says in this little section of 1 John sounds, which sounds confusing, verses 7 and 8. I don't know if you felt confused when you were listening to that. I did, certainly the first time I read. This is an old commandment, which is a new commandment, which is also the old commandment, but it's really still the new commandment. It's like, what is John saying here? He's talking about this commandment that comes from John 13, 34, the night that he was there and listened to Jesus say it. In fact, everything here in 1 John chapter 2 is in reference to what John learned that night in John 13. Verse 1 of our gospel reading, Jesus loved the disciples. Remember the ones who were about to betray him and abandon him. He loved them even to the end. That is all the way to the cross in a few hours. And hours before his death, before he was killed, what is he doing here in John 13? He's serving. He's loving He's washing his disciples' feet, Peter's feet, who he knew he would later have to forgive for betraying him, Judas' feet, who he knew would hand him over to be crucified. And yet what does he do? He kneels before each of these men and washes their feet. It's a servant's job. Not only that, if it's in a high society house, and that day when there were multiple servants working in that household, it was the job of the lowest servant on the hierarchy. And that is the job that Jesus chooses to do. And in doing it, what does he say in verse 14? Not just, I do this and now you are clean. No, he says, do as I have done to you. I'm your teacher. I am your Lord. If I am doing this to you, then that is how you must treat one another as well in verse 14. Or notice it's the exact same thing. In verse 6 of 1 John chapter 2, walk in exactly the way that he walked. Treat each other, Jesus is saying, as I'm treating you. Love each other. Will, desire, and do the good of each other. That is the command in verse 34. Love one another how? As I have loved you. In self-giving love and sacrifice. If you know this Jesus, who calls you beautiful, who loves you to the end, who pauses to kneel before you and serve you on his way to die for you. What could possibly be your response than to say, I will do what you say. I will imitate you. I will love those that you love. Of course, that begs a question, doesn't it? Because that sounds really beautiful and nice. But are there people in this church even today, that you believe you are above serving, that you believe that you are above kneeling before and washing their feet? Are there people here that you take communion next to who feast with this very same Jesus kneeling next to you before Jesus that you are harboring resentment and bitterness toward? Someone that you refuse to forgive or refuse to try to reconcile with? Or do you assume the worst of your brother 
or your sister. So you can coddle a feeling of superiority or self-righteousness. Do you kneel before them and say instead, how can I serve you as our Savior has served us? How can I make your good my goal as Jesus made our good his goal? How can I love you as we have been loved by Jesus? When you do that, that is how the love of God is being perfected, as 1 John verse five, chapter 2, verse 5 talks about, the love of God that is being perfected. It is in loving and serving the person right in front of you and right behind you and right next to you and in this pew over here and in that chair back there and in the narthex and over in the children's hall. That is how the light pushes back the darkness in the world. It's how the light pushes back the darkness in our own hearts. And it is how God beautifies his house. Our hearts and our lives reordering and orbiting once again around the sun we were made to orbit around, not slamming into each other until we are all left alone in the dark. You know, an image Isaiah 60 here shares with Revelation 22. Isaiah 60, verses 19 through 20, and Revelation 21, verse 23, both say that in eternity, in the future of the world, the sun will be no more. The sun will be no more. It's symbolic, of course, but why? Because, they both say, it will not be needed to give light. In Isaiah chapter 60, it says, because the Lord will be the everlasting light. And in Revelation 21, it says, because the Lamb of God will be the lamp and the light of God will be shed everywhere. So there will be no darkness. The symbolic picture is this, that the center of everything, the thing that gives life and joy and health to everything will be God himself. And he'll be the center in everything and everyone will orbit around him and yet be perfectly alive and perfectly illuminated and filled with his presence in light. And the darkness of sin and death will be gone from every crevice and in every place. And that picture is what John is also talking about here in 1 John chapter 2. That is where things are headed. That is where this people that he is writing to and the church and the world are headed. And that, he is saying, is the reason to stay. Our sermon series is the reason to stay. What is John giving to this group for the reason to stay? Because this is where the world is headed. And this is what the world is going to look like. And if you're united to Jesus by faith, you are headed there. This is where all God's people are headed. So the question is, are you living a life in that direction already? Are you Jerry? on that path, walking into life and the future? Are you wandering around up in the woods? Is that Christian brother and sister that you will not love and will not serve? They are heading there too with you. Will you love them now as you will and must for all eternity? Perhaps you wonder, well, you're talking about the end of the world and the way the world is going to end up. And it sounds beautiful and lovely and great. But listen, I have a cell phone and I'm getting the news. What small act of love in 10 minutes here with somebody out in the courtyard or in the narthex that I'm going to do or during this week with somebody, is it going to make any difference to all these big 
life-changing events that are happening all the time, all over the world, about pandemics and wars and rumors of wars and economic meltdown and governmental chaos, can it possibly make a difference, these small acts of love, especially if I do something that no one is ever even going to see? You know, back in the Middle Ages, when cathedrals were built, of course, cathedrals, there were no power tools back in the Middle Ages. And these cathedrals were all being built by hand. And when you began making this cathedral, many of the people who started it, the craftsmen who began it, would be long dead before the cathedral was ever finished. They would never see the work that they begun. But they worked for what? By faith, for a far-off future that they could not see with their own eyes, but they could see by faith and knew that if they gave their work to God, that God would return it back to them. They wanted to build the house of God with what they had and could do. There's a story that comes out of that time period about a stone worker who was, I don't remember which cathedral this was on, but it was completing an ornate flowery top of a column on a cathedral that in incidentally, in the end, was going to be entirely covered by the exterior facade. So that this flower that was being spent laboring over this craftsman, it was going to be hidden and obscured from view by the stonework on the outside of it. And the man asked this worker how he felt about working so hard on something that no one would ever see. And he paused and then went back to work, working on his flower and said, God will see. God will see. Friends, every small act of love and service in imitation of Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, in love of Jesus' people is a beautiful piece of God's beautiful house. It's a radiant piece of beauty that will be seen and celebrated by God. It will become a beaming, luminescent piece of the architecture of God's eternal home, an act that pushes the darkness away one bit farther. This is what it means to know God. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining upon you and Christ. You are people of the light. So shine on. Love as you have been loved in Christ. Serve one another as you have been served in Christ. Head into the direction where all things are going, preparing for the future that God is bringing about in his grace and in his love. Amen. Father, we do pray and ask that we would be people of the light, that we would imitate your son Jesus, that we would serve one another as you have served us, that we would obey your command to love one another as you have loved us, and may be be by that a piece of your growing light and grace and love throughout the world in our own hearts and lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.